Hey, it's Imogen from Squarepeg. In the midst of the global pandemic, my colleagues Tushar Roy and Ed Barker moved with their families to open our fourth office in the heart of Singapore. We'd started investing in Southeast Asia around 2015, and although we hadn't really ever imagined quarantine being a part of the landing plan, we had been itching to build a permanent Squarepeg home in the region for a long time. And the reason for this is simple. Southeast Asia is full of potential. But it's hard to grasp the scale of opportunity in Southeast Asia. And so I'm grateful that today's guest, Akshay Garg, the founder and CEO at Phoenixcel, will help us do just this. The problem that Akshay is solving is to do with credit. And to help me set the scene, let me give you the 101 on fintech in the region. Broadly speaking, Southeast Asians have insufficient access to many of the basic financial services that people in developed economies take for granted. Of the nearly 400 million adults in Southeast Asia, only 104 million are fully banked and enjoy access to the full range of financial services. Another 98 million or another quarter are what's called underbanked, with a bank account but no real access to credit, investment or insurance. And nearly 198 million adults in Southeast Asia, so basically a half, are unbanked. That is, they do not own a bank account at all. And the reasons for this are layered. One is cost. In a sprawling region where physical infrastructure is mostly lacking, it's prohibitively expensive for financial institutions to roll out new physical branches or stores. The more interesting challenge from a technology standpoint is that the basic prerequisites for functioning financial institutions, so public registers, identification systems, and reliable credit information, is mostly missing or unconnected to each other. And the third is that banking is a tightly regulated sector in many Southeast Asian nations, which has largely dampened competition and innovation as a result. Akshay is solving a really important part of this market inefficiency, providing credit to adults in Indonesia. In 2019, when Akshay raised their $90 million Series C round, the largest fundraising round for a fintech in the region ever, they had over a million customers and were clocking growth rates at over 300% year on year. But we start our story with Akshay in Delhi, India, where Akshay was born. I grew up in New Delhi, India. My dad's uh, a doc, he's an anesthesiologist. My mom's a high school political science and history teacher. Uh, so there's two of us, as in two brothers. We've got a younger brother who uh, is about four years younger than me, now lives in Switzerland, in Geneva. I think my identity at this point in time, at least just the way I think about myself, is a little bit of a global nomad. Uh, it's not just about being Indian. It's very hard for me to think about myself as anything because in some ways I'm not quite sure if I belong anywhere. But uh, growing up in India was wonderful. I think I grew up in a very sort of caring, progressive family. I, I think every child has happy memories, but I think we were, let's just put it this way, I think we were quite privileged. So I think we, in some ways, we're the best of everything. And uh, the part of New Delhi that we grew up is a pretty amazing place. I still have very fond memories uh, of my childhood. My parents still live there, same house where we were actually brought up. Uh, you know, lots of summer holidays, right, uh, in different parts of the country. Weekends at clubhouses, playing playing tennis or cricket, right, or swimming lessons. So, uh, no, it was it was a pretty, pretty amazing childhood. So I left India when I was 17, right. Uh, my parents egged me on to uh, study outside India simply because, well, India, you know, I think the education system ends up being very rigid. And I think my mom, being an educationist, probably discovered at 
my young age that I think I have diverse interests and that I can really uh, study across a very broad discipline or broad variety of uh, uh, subjects as opposed to just a very narrow one, which is generally offered in India. So I think my mom really encouraged me to leave very early, essentially uh, to university in the States. And that's really when I actually had a chance to essentially sort of indulge my interest in China a little bit. Started uh, studying a bit of Mandarin. I was terrible at it. I'm not very good at languages, even though I kind of love them. What Akshay says was an indulgence of his interest in China turned out to become something resembling much more of an obsession. And he was given the opportunity to explore this fascination through a postgraduate program from his university. Right after I graduated from university in the US, I had a job offer from a consulting firm called Monitor, which has now actually been acquired by Deloitte. So it's Deloitte Monitor. And I deferred that for a year to go to China. And um, quite honestly, I think when I look back, I think how that year shaped me and changed me. You know, uh, you can go teach English or, you know, be a research assistant to a professor or something like that. I just kind of lucked out. I mean, I wasn't particularly enthused about the idea of teaching English. I'm not very patient in that regard. But uh, no, I think there was a professor at the economics department at Yunnan University in Kunming who was interested in taking me on as a research assistant. And that's really where it started coming together. I spent a year, in the year 2000, 2001, you know, essentially having the sweetest gig on the planet. I was a research assistant for about two hours a day, five days a week, so that's 10 hours. And for everything else, I could just do whatever I wanted, right? So I essentially started enrolling in the Mandarin courses, right? Uh, started like four to six hours a day. I was in a dormitory with a bunch of other Chinese postgraduate students. So it really kind of like, you know, was a fairly immersive environment. And I uh, just ended up loving it. I mean, I think that's really where the love fair with China started. So, so Kunming is a very interesting place in China. It's a little bit of a hippie town. It actually sits at the other end of, end of the Himalayan range. So it's relatively high in the mountains, right? Uh, you know, a little bit of a hipster town. And I think uh, when I really think about it, I think like some of the people that I met were some brilliant people who were just exploring a certain, you know, interest in life. Someone was studying Tibetan Buddhism, someone was actually studying Chinese traditional medicine. And, and these aren't uh, hippies, right? I mean, these were really bright people who were pursuing diverse interests. And not that I realized it then, but I think that might have been a little bit of a trigger for me to explore my own path a little bit, as opposed to just go down the street and that. For Akshay, it wasn't as if his path in entrepreneurship was illuminated from out of the darkness but a small persistent light flickered on that served as a constant reminder to pursue his own interests. And it was this lesson that stuck with him as he returned to the US to take up his job offer in Seattle. I enjoyed what I was doing in, in Seattle. And uh, while I was stationed in Seattle, I was spending most of my time in San Francisco, which was the highlight of that one year, right? Because that city is just, just amazing. But uh, no, I left after a year to go back to China. I think China had really in some ways uh, caught my heart and I went back to study Mandarin even deeper. At that point in time, I think I was pretty focused on uh, potentially building a career as a professional economist, right, with, with China expertise. And I think if you wanted to do that, you needed to have very, very strong Mandarin skills. So I went back for a year to China and then enrolled in grad school in Switzerland, in essentially what was a theoretical economics program, right? Finished my coursework, joined the United Nations as an analyst. As you just heard, Akshay bounced from Seattle to China to Switzerland in a couple of years, trying to figure out where his home was among the professional world, but also geographic world. And nothing seemed to feel just right. 
And while the job in Switzerland was prestigious and provided him an opportunity to wrestle with the intellectual complexities of economics policy at the UN, it also seemed to cater to a deeper need he felt to be in the public service. After India became independent in 1947, Akshay's grandfather was one of the first civil servants to be sent on diplomacy to the United States. And his father, despite being a renowned anesthesiologist, served in the military for 15 years. And he notes that this clearly played a part of why he joined the UN. You know, when you're young, I think you're a little bit more impressionable and you always want to follow sort of your family traditions and so on. So I think the idea was, it would be very cool to do this in, in, a, in a global sort of, you know, multilingual environment such as the United Nations. But it wasn't for me. I think, you know, the environment's very bureaucratic. It's very slow moving. Uh, it's not me. Right. And I think at that point of time, I think I was still in love with China. China still held a place of deep fascination for Akshay. And so despite doing well in Switzerland, working through his coursework and on fascinating projects on fintech, which become more relevant later in the story, he quit his job and headed back to China. I moved back in 2004 with the idea that, look, I'm not quite sure what's going to come out of this, but I'm really obsessed with the country. At that point of time, I had very fluent Mandarin skills. I passed the high certification level and so on. So I think language wasn't an issue. And I thought, look, I'm going to go figure it out. I think China in, in, in the early part of the last decade was still opening up. There were a lot of opportunities. I think learning Mandarin is a very unique intellectual challenge, right? It's a completely different world. It really forces you to think and learn in slightly different ways, right? I think the language was one part of it, but I think an equally important part was just the energy and the vibe in China. You know, China today, I mean, I'm not sure if you've traveled to, to China, but I think in the, the week of years, 2000 to 2010, you know, is really what I think about as an equivalent of startup China. There was this crazy, frenetic energy, right? Construction crews working 24 hours a day, seven days a week in three different shifts, right? I mean, you can be out partying with your buddies on a Friday night at 2 a.m. and you're going back home and the streets are lit on either side, I mean, there's these crazy buildings going up, right? I mean, 24 hours a day, it's a real head-turning experience. It's nothing like what we've ever experienced in the Western world. I think a real hunger amongst people to, to do more, achieve more, a fiercely competitive society. I think, you know, when, when you were there in those days, I think the vibe just kind of gets to you a little bit. You're like, oh my God, I mean, it's kind of like being on drugs, pardon the analogy, that you just want more of it. And I think, uh, you know, that, that hunger was just kind of like, you know, that, that vibe was just kind of pulling me back. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I mean, look, when you go back, I mean, who is this who said this, right? I mean, Steve Jobs, I think commencement ceremony at Stanford where he said like, you know, uh, stay hungry, stay foolish is very, it's a very well-known speech. But I think one of the other things that he actually said is that you can't connect the dots looking forward, but you can actually connect the dots looking backwards. Akshay's first dot on his journey in entrepreneurship is so hilariously different to what he's doing now that we can't not cover it here. It was also a spectacular failure, which should give everyone hope working on something that's not quite working out just yet. The business was a chain of North Indian restaurants that Akshay, Amar, and a group of friends started up. I'm a huge fan of roasted meats, right? Uh, spice roasted meats in, in a clay oven. And China was coming up, right? I mean, growing with consumerism, people hungry for new experiences. Teamed up with a couple of buddies, right? To basically build a plan for what I thought would be a chain of North Indian kebab restaurants with some cool cocktails. It was really targeted at the office crowd in the CBD. So post-work, instead of going home, just stop for some meats and a, and a cocktail or a beer. So this is kind of like, you know, wacky hybrid mix. I mean, what did I know about hospitality, right? 
And this project just bombed. Oh my God, just totally bombed. I mean, you know, no one showed up. We had like 20 guests in maybe like one month. And, you know, we're like, what did we do wrong here, right? I mean, so, so it teaches you a lot about, about kind of like building businesses and how you really need to understand consumer needs and, and uh, motivations, right? You can't just go top down. You've got to go bottoms up. And though the cocktail and spiced meats idea bombed, the relationships were really strong. And so when one of his co-founders wanted to start his next startup, Comly, Akshay was immediately tapped to help. We stayed in touch. And I think at that point in time, Amar was thinking about building another business in the tech world. Uh, he's American, but of Indian descent. So he wanted to move back to India. He had a very bold vision at that point in time to go disrupt the world of online advertising by making it more data-driven. And I think at that point in time, the idea was to build an Asia-focused sort of, you know, digital advertising disruptor. And given my skills in, in, in data, analytics, right, uh, partly business, partly entrepreneurial. And my history, I was like, look, come team up with me. Let's, let's go do something, right? And uh, would, you, would you move to India with me for a couple of years where we built core product? And then let's go figure out, right? Maybe we could take this and expand in China or something else. And that's what led to Comley. So I was actually first employee at Comley. And, you know, given, I think, the work that I did, in some ways I was elevated to co-founder over a couple of years. But uh, that's what led me to Comly. I mean, I didn't have any background in online advertising or, or real tech. In some ways, I'm not uh, techie in the traditional sense. I don't code. But uh, when it comes to my core hook has always been data. I, mean, I kind of feel like I can do magic with data. This was back in 2016. And sometimes when I tell these stories, I have to remind myself even that the world of tech, even just 5, 10, 15 years ago, was very, very different to the world that we live in today. And in the early 2000s, online advertising was appearing as an area ripe for disruption. And this was the area that calmly the business that Akshay was building, was tackling. And to illustrate this point, to describe the before and after Comly experience, Akshay asked me how much I knew about the TV series Mad Men, which follows the lives of advertising executives on Madison Avenue. It was a smash hit and also incredibly beautifully filmed. And I told him that I had watched every episode. Great. So, so traditionally, that's how advertising's worked. Boozy lunches, right? Massive expense accounts, right? Uh, salespeople showing up to marketing heads of large corporate budgets. And in some ways, almost wooing them, right? To, to spend money on them. Uh, get an ad on the front page of the New York Times, right? Or the AFR, for example. Well, that's totally changed, right? I mean, that's how things used to be in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Today, if you really think about the world of digital advertising, I'm, still, I'm not talking about offline. Offline is still the same, but the world of digital advertising is very data-driven, right? If you're on Facebook or Instagram or any other social media site, or even, I don't know, like any sort of, you know, digital site in Australia, there's a 90% probability that an ad that you're actually seeing is not stuck there. It's, you know, someone sitting in the same room as you on another laptop who goes to the same site is very likely not to see the same ad because advertising is very personalized. What's really happening in the background is that a huge amount of data is being collected, right? Or, or, uh, attempting, you know, there's a lot of attempts to collect data about you through things like cookies or third-party data sources that anonymize data and sell it due to advertising exchanges, such as what we were trying to do at Comly. And then what we really do is use that data in some ways to essentially build an audience profile in real time. So we pioneered that in India and Southeast Asia and grew Comly into a company across 12 countries and about 500 employees. 
The story of Comley seems pretty linear in this telling, but in truth, it was a really wild ride for Akshay and his team. And he wrote it the whole way until an eventual sale eight years after it started. And it was the perfect learning ground where he figured out what matters when building a company. I think it's never been about the outcome. I think it's been a little bit about, I think, the problem and the scale of the problem, the intellectual challenge. But more than that, I think it's always been about the people and culture. What always excites me even today, right, when I wake up in the morning and makes me super hungry about what we do, is I think uh, the people that I work with today and I think the culture that we, we built here. And I think at Comley, uh, it, was, it was very similar. I think I, uh, I've realized much later on in life when I look back, I think uh, the people I work with, and how we go about things is probably more important to me from a motivation and challenge perspective than most other things, if I would isolate variables, right? And I think the, the greatest thing about Comley was, I think, uh, the incredible teams that we built. Comley is notable because on the way up, it looked like a rocket ship. They were securing significant partnerships with organizations such as Twitter, building a reputation as a phenomenal place to work, and raising significant funding rounds to support their growth. They'd built the largest programmatic ad network in ASEAN, but when the time came to sell the business in the post-GFC climate, the wheels seemed to start coming off. And the acquisition, which was rumored to be underway, targeting a valuation in the hundreds of millions, ended up being far, far less than that. And when I asked Akshay what had stayed with him and what he had learned, ultimately, it was this. I kind of feel like um, we let some people down, right? I mean, I think... um... This was a really high quality team with a lot of promise. I think a lot of people, investors, vendors, who knew Comley and the core team would think about this as one of the highest quality teams of the first wave of India or Southeast Asia's wave of digital disruption. And a very large number of very bright, very hardworking people spent a lot of time with us over a very large number of years. I, I think in some ways we might have let them down. But I, I just don't think Comley was the exit that I think a lot of these people had hoped for. As founders, we didn't make much at all, right? Uh, you know, uh, so employees made very little. I think the company had raised too much money. The exit was much smaller than that. But I think more than anything else, it, for me, it really comes down to the fact that I think we let some people down and I wish things were a little bit different. But what did I really learn from that? I think I uh, learned a lot about fundraising, learned a lot about building culture, learned a lot about, I think, being a Swiss Army knife. Uh, I, I think today, what most people describe me as, you seem to do a lot of things very well, and that's quite rare as a founder. And I think... Um, It's not something I was born with. I think I was just blessed with incredible mentors. After Comley's sale, Akshay wanted to spend some time reflecting on his experience and thinking through his next steps. And so he joined the Kaufman Fellowship Program, an 18-month commitment to do just that, alongside entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And it was as part of the Kaufman Fellowship that he started to think back through all of his experience. And there was one that he had had, one dot in his story of many dots along the way to what became Finixel, that seemed somehow newly important. It was a project that looked at the role of fintech in emerging economies. So when I was uh, an analyst at the UN in uh, 2003, 2004, and this was across Geneva and uh, Dakar, I was based there for about four months. 
So uh, I was actually working on a, this really interesting project, right, uh, on the role of remittances. So uh, in French-speaking Europe, there's a lot of uh, North African labor because they end up being French-speaking, uh, Moroccan, Senegalese, right, and so on. They end up doing a lot of the, you know, low-wage jobs, right, menial jobs, if you will, uh, and then remitting a lot of this capital back to, to their home com- countries. And the study that we were working on which was uh, not just with the labor organization where I was an analyst, but the United Nations Conference of Trade and Development and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, was really in some ways talking about, one, the size and scale of remittances, but also the role that remittances play. And uh, one of the really interesting conclusions of the study, it was groundbreaking then, now it's, it's, it's a truism, is how remittances in a lot of uh, economies such as Mexico, Senegal, Philippines, Mexico tends to send a lot of labor to the U.S., Philippines tends to send a lot of, uh, you know, low-wage labor to Singapore, Hong Kong, and the broader region, right? Uh, you end up seeing Filipino nannies in, in Europe. Uh, a lot of this, these remittances, in some ways, are actually supplanting the role of credit. When remittances go back home, they're actually being put to productive uses a lot of times, right? Sending, sending children to school or family members opening up a small business, right? It's not just going into, uh, you know, hey, let's go blow this money up to party, right? Uh, and, and part of the reason that actually happens is that banking systems in these countries are just not well-developed, right? So that they can extend credit to, to essentially the, the lower middle class, if you will. But, but our thesis was, it was solving for this more through the network of uh, trusted members of society, a social network of individuals. My thesis was that, look, I mean, I think we're sitting across this wave of mobile adoption. This is four years ago. Uh, in the last four years, I mean, mobile is everything now in Southeast Asia, right? I mean, most people are on low-cost Android smartphones, which is going to create this uh, massive sort of, you know, uh, digital footprint, if you will, or digital exhaust, right, put out by these consumers. And can that data be mined to extend them credit? This problem, that credit is so important to emerging economies, but often quite difficult to access, is the problem that Akshay couldn't seem to stop thinking about. Especially because at the heart of it, at the heart of providing a solution, was data. And as Akshay says himself, he can work magic with data. This is what he saw as being the big opportunity in his life, to use data, his experience in Comley, to have a big impact for people. I mean, building a business that is less about just helping marketers be more effective. But how do you really make a real impact in society? Extend credit to individuals who are not getting access to credit. Now, around all of this is this huge sort of, you know, overarching thought around the fact that as these countries are getting richer, they're no longer poor, but they're starting to hit middle income, right? So you've got the right macro fundamentals coming in place, but people will need credit. So that was really the thesis that brought it all together. And I spent about a year, year and a half refining this while I was going through the Kaufman Fellows Program. So I did that right after Comley to come up for air. It spent eight years there, needed some time, some fresh air to think about what next. And instead of going down the world of venture capital, which is what most people do through the Coffin Fellows program, I kind of use that time to really refine my thinking and the pieces around the opportunity to go build disruptive in the world of online lending. And that's how it really came together. One of the attributes that we see in the founders we work with at SquarePeg is this limitless curiosity when they come to finding the problem that they want to spend a decade of their life solving. And for Akshay, the kebab shop owner, come economist, come startup founder, this meant becoming an expert in financial services and picking up a few co-founders along the way. 
I made up my mind I want to go after this in 2015, early 2015. And I spent about six months, I want to say, the first six months of 2015. And now when I look back, all of it seems very well planned, but it wasn't, right? I mean, you've got some mental milestones, but it's not like I've allocated six months, right? I mean, the idea was, I think, uh, after I made up my mind, I was very interested in the problem. I knew something big could be built. You know, I started meeting a lot of what I call domain experts. I mean, what do I know about the world of credit? I know a lot about data, but this is a very different functional expertise. And I kid you not, across those six months, I probably met with about a hundred people. And at that point in time, I was primarily based in Bangkok because uh, my now my wife was uh, working at the UN in Bangkok. So it was based out of Bangkok. I was traveling through the region very frequently. And I was reaching out through my investor network, friends, LinkedIn, a lot of people who were working in credit businesses. And I was literally just kind of like, hey, this is me. I'm thinking about doing something in this space. I'd love to kind of like, you know, buy you a coffee or a meal and just have a chat with you. And I've got a bunch of questions. And I uh, met with people who were in credit funds, people who were building credit businesses, who were risk analysts, risk managers, customer acquisition experts at traditional consumer finance companies or banks. I want to say, I, I wish I'd countered this, but I want to say I ended up meeting with between like 100 to 200 people. And uh, one of those was Uman, who was at McKinsey in Bangkok, right? I, I reached out to him on LinkedIn. Can you believe it? Uh, and he responded. He was very open to meeting. And while Uman was at McKinsey, he was part of a very focused, very elite group in the world in, in the financial services practice that was really focused on risk management. Right, so most of his projects were very focused in that area. It was very, very sort of specialized. And Umang is, look, I mean, what do I tell you about Umang? Umang is just one of the most brilliant people I've met in my life. An incredible guy, very warm, very humble. We met, we hit it off. We ended up meeting quite a few times, right? Because he was also based in Bangkok with McKinsey. And you know, after you meet four, five, six times, I mean, you know, Umang was like, look, I think, you know, I'm kind of interested in the same problem. And if you're really keen on doing something, maybe I can partner with you. And, and that's how Umang happened. And uh, so actually, long story short, I knew what I do well. I also knew what I needed, right? So the founding team needs to have very complementary skill sets. So I needed someone who has very deep domain expertise in risk. And um, I'm very strong at product, but I'm not a coder. I needed someone to actually, you know, really build a starting code base, essentially be sort of, you know, founding CTO. And then, then through my network, Oman's network, we also started meeting with a bunch of people who could potentially kind of like, you know, come on board as founding sort of engineering chief, right? And uh, through that network, actually through one of Oman's friends, we met with Ali and we hit it off again. Ali is just a rock star sort of, you know, engineering founder, deep te technical chops, but loves going after big problems, right? And working on crazy problems. And I think it took a couple of meetings for Ali to be like, hey, I'm in. So, so that took about six months. I think Umang and I decided to team up in August, September. Ali came on board in November, I want to say. So yeah, over the course of 2015 is really where the founding team came together and then we started doing the first sort of hires. This is the business that we, SquarePeg, invested in. The parent company is called Phoenixcel, though the service they've built is called Credivo. In its simplest form, Credivo has three layers. The first is the credit scoring bureau that we'll get into more in a second. The second is, is a credit provider. And the third is a partnerships engine so that someone can, in just a few minutes, sign up, get assessed and purchase products. When we invested back in 2018, our thesis was pretty simple. Indonesia, where Akshay was building his business, is the world's fourth largest population. And 52% of that nation are below the age of 30. 
per capita GDP and mobile internet penetration had both just hit the levels at which e-commerce begins to boom. However, Indonesian consumers are credit starved. There is a massive market of good credit consumers that want to use credit and installment payments to transact online and offline, but have no simple way to do so. This is because Indonesia has both the lowest credit card penetration in ASEAN and massive issues with high interest rates from other black market and alternative licensed financiers. We know that credit is a major driving force in the growth of economies, and we believed, along with Akshay, that enabling greater access to credit in Indonesia would prime a loop where more people will transact more often, driving growth of e-commerce markets. Credivo will be a beneficiary of this through first-order effects, which is the transaction, and second-order effects, a credit-catalyzed market growth. But in Akshay's words, Credivo has layers, and if you really get to the bottom of what they're doing with Credivo, it's building a digital credit bureau in Indonesia. Technically, on paper, Indonesia does have a centralized credit bureau. Most people would agree that uh, while the intentions around that are very good, the execution has not been as good as it could have been. So uh, the data is sparse, the coverage is sparse, and the, the quality of the data, even within the coverage that it actually has, is spotty. Uh, and that's the reason that uh, most banks will reject 90% of credit card applications. It's not because there's something wrong with the paperwork of the individual, but when you actually query the credit bureau, either you don't find the individual or when you find the individual, a lot of the data basically doesn't make sense. The bank will do what it's best of doing, which is take the safest decision, which is to reject the customer. There's a few other people doing it too, but a few of us are actually building out Indonesia's first all digital credit bureau, if you will. How do we do that? Right, uh, what a credit bureau is in traditional forms is, is banks reporting loan history. Now we don't do that. What we're really collecting is a lot of user data, uh, obviously with user consent, right, or third-party consent. So it's, it's mobile phone data and then self-reported e-commerce, bank account data, right, telco data that we actually get through telco partnerships into location and spending history, tax data that we get in partnership with the tax bureaus, right, uh, location data that we get in, third by in partnership, you know, social security, sort of, you know, payments data that we get in partnership with certain government bureaus. And this is just literally a sliver. And think about us as a giant vacuum hose which is actually partnering with these data sources and then sucking in whatever we can into a giant hopper. And that's really then where we apply a lot of data science and data engineering to cleanse that data, sort it, and then assign it to a user profile. So in some ways, what we're really building out is a giant data vacuum on, on a lot of sort of individuals. And all of this is completely done completely legitimately. Uh, either through user consent or through third parties, right, which are regulated in some form or fashion under the country's laws. So it's anonymized data that basically goes into this giant hopper, which we then mine to build out credit scores and update in real time based on users' repayment history. So, so now, you know, what we're actually starting to do is, under the regulations of the country, we're also reporting, uh, you know, loan history back into the traditional credit bureaus which then feeds into the traditional credit score. So it's another way of saying that actually now the traditional credit bureau is also incorporating a digital credit bureau's performance, right? Simply because uh, we, we have to report loan performance back into, into the traditional credit bureau. So in some ways, right, I'd like to think that we're making a real dent to how credit bureaus work in this country. When I asked Akshay about what his company is getting right and why they're so successful, he had a few thoughts, but... First, he wanted to make sure that while they may be getting some things right, according to him, they are nowhere near their full potential. 
I honestly believe that we're still on, uh, maybe not the basement, but I think we're on the ground floor or perhaps the first floor, right, of, of what is potentially a 10-story building that we've got to build. We have a pretty big vision to go build one of the most um, iconic digital financial services companies in the region over the next four to five years. So there's still a lot of work to be done. In terms of what do we get right, I think uh, we've gotten a few things right, but I think uh, one of the things that makes it very unique and very strong is that we approach credit from a payments perspective. In the early days, I think it was something that didn't make sense to anyone. I think the investors, I seed investors at that point of time were kind of like, what are you doing with this action? <laughs> you know, why don't you just lend? Now, what is this payments play? But I think our thesis was that if you really have to build customer retention, which then feeds into very strong unit economics, you need to build something which a customer is constantly um, using. Right, uh, That's how you build a habit-forming product. If a customer is going to take a loan once in six months, that's not habit-forming. Right? I mean, a customer has, has infinite choice or, or many choices, and how do you really build loyalty? But I think given my background in ad tech, where we were serving a lot of very large e-commerce companies, and we knew that the biggest problem that e-commerce companies are solving for is card abandonment, Right, that you, get, you spend a lot of people on marketing to get them in, but then there's massive drop-off of the checkout. And it was very clear to me, the reason for the drop-off of the checkout, right? Because you're so up close and center, you're literally at the coal face of, of the growth of e-commerce in the region across India and Southeast Asia, is because payment methods are a piece of CRAP, pardon my language, right? I mean, you've got to jump through multiple hoops. The reason that people use cash and credit cards offline is it's just so easy. You give it across the counter, you get your change back, or you swipe the credit card. Building payment system is all about ease of use. And I don't think anyone had really figured that out, as obvious as that insight is. So our view was that let's actually really go build a credit business in the back of disrupting e-commerce payments, right? Let's simplify the 10 steps that a user has to make to actually complete an e-commerce transaction by building a very simple e-commerce checkout. And that's really what in equal parts Credivo is. When people actually think about Credivo, they think about a credit business. It is, but that's not all of what it is. Credivo is in equal parts the Credivo checkout, which is now... Uh, integrated, right, with the payment methods of most of the large e-commerce companies in Indonesia. It's a two-click checkout. So you can just log in and transact super quick. It's in equal parts checkout and equal parts a credit business where we provide loans for installments for three, six, and 12 months. I, I would say that was probably the, the biggest sort of, you know, differentiator that we got right in the early days, yeah. Akshay was a bit hesitant to give all-encompassing advice on what it means to be a good founder. He says that everyone has their own journey, but looking back on his experience, the first thing he would say is that if you want to be a founder, try to join a company at a very early stage, but closely with the seniors of the founding team. Secondly, I think it's very important to build a very diverse set of experiences. Now, without actually planning that way, I've been uh, across roles where I've had to be primarily biz dev, primarily product, primarily corp dev, primarily, I mean, I've worn every single hat prior to founding Credivo or Finexcel from my previous roles, every single hat outside of being CTO, you know? And I think uh, that really kind of like uh, rounded me out in a way that I think I kind of probably know enough to be dangerous in most areas without necessarily being, uh, you know, deep, deep, deep expert, right? Now that has its pros and cons, right? It makes me a strong generalist versus a specialist. But I think if you really want to be a founder, I think being a generalist is fundamentally important because in the early days, you need to be able to. In equal parts, be marketer, equal parts, biz dev, equal parts, product, equal parts, fundraiser in chief. And I'm really talking about a CEO skill set here. If you're just a co-founder as a CTO or a risk, uh, you know, or ops person or, or a product person alone, I think you can afford to be 
you know, very deeply specialized. But if you really, I think, aspire to be a founding CEO, I think a generalist skill set is probably pretty important. So I would just encourage people to explore and get as many experiences as they can in the early days. Here's one final piece of advice from Akshay that really sums up his experience in life. I don't know why more people don't explore entrepreneurship. I think the only thing I'll say to people is, I mean, look, I wish people had more uh, risk appetite. I think too many people actually don't end up doing things simply because they're concerned about the consequences because they're afraid of being judged. I think if people could get rid of that stigma, right, or that fear of that stigma, I think, you know, uh, there'd be a lot more entrepreneurs uh, don't feel afraid of failure. It's, it's a learning experience. It's a journey. And it just makes you stronger and better. That's it for our conversation with Akshay Garg, the founder and CEO at Finixel. If you want to learn more about their product, Credivo, you can do so online at credivo.com. That's K-R-E-D-I-V-O.com. Thanks this week goes to Akshay, our guest, Rami, our fabulous producer, and you for joining me here. We'll see you next week.